is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only. And the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much we are responsible if you're wrong. You should always do your own homework and let us know the world. Welcome back to The Curbsiders. This is your host, Dr. Matthew Watto. And since I wasn't interrupted there, you probably know that uh, Stuart is not here today. And actually, neither is Paul Williams. I am joined today by co-host Dr. Leah Witt. Hey, Leah, thank you for so much for coming back on the show. Hi, I'm excited to be here. This is a great episode. Oh, it is a fantastic episode. I'm really excited to get to it. But just first, can you just remind the audience a little bit about who you are? Yes. Um, So I am a geriatrician and pulmonologist at UCSF uh, and really um, excited about being a part of the Curbsiders because I'm also helping to lead our Women in Medicine series. And I am so happy to have you leading that project because it has been fantastic so far and I'm really excited to see what else you and your team come up with for that. So can you tell the audience a little bit about our guest for today? Yes. So today we have the expert of experts, Dr. Lindau, here to help us parse through sexual, female sexual dysfunction. Um, she is an engineer of solutions to injustice. Uh, we're taking a lot of her bio from her Women Lab, Woman Lab website, so I encourage you to go check it out. So Dr. Lindau's uh, interest in this topic started as a medical student when she visited a witch in Salem, Massachusetts, who correctly prophesied that she would one day be a vaginecologist. She is a tenured professor of obstetrics and gynecology and geriatrics at the University of Chicago Medicine, where she's also the director of the program in integrative sexual medicine, the PRISM program, which focuses on women with cancer and female sexual function in the context of aging and illness. She also directs the Southside Health and Vitality Studies at the University of Chicago and studies health equity to promote health and well-being. She is an Aspen Institute Health Innovator Fellow, and she's a real really fierce woman in medicine. Uh, She's quite a role model for all of us in medicine, but particularly women in medicine. Um, And I have to say this episode is excellent. Dr. Linda was great. We not only did we get into screening questions in primary care, what to look out for, but she gave us a lot of ideas on treatment. And I feel like this issue is so underdiagnosed, undertreated, and part of it is that patients are reluctant to talk to us, but we're also really reluctant to have the sex talk with our patients. So I hope this changes your practice and gives you some ideas on how to talk to patients. I agree. Everything you said, she was fantastic. And we have to thank Nora Toronto for bringing, uh, bringing us this idea and encouraging us to, to go forward with this topic. She was totally right about that. Thanks, Nora. Well, Stacy, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. This is we, this has been in the plans, I think, since like February or March when when Nora had first pitched this to us. So, thank you for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. The first question we always ask our guests is: Can you give them a little bit of a one-liner, the kind that we might use in the hospital, so they get kind of an idea of who you are? And it doesn't have to be just as a physician; some of your hobbies or interests as well. Well, I'm not sure you would uh, introduce me this way in the hospital, but I would say 
Call me a humanitarian who made it look like science. Call me an engineer of solutions to injustice. Uh, I live in a fraternity house, which uh, involves three sons and a spouse. And I probably have too many ideas. Okay. Ah, I love that description. <laughs> a humanitarian. Oh, that's great. I, I also, my house is an aspiring fraternity house. I have three sons, but the oldest one is about to turn seven. But so it's, it's a little different than I imagine. Your, maybe yours are older than mine. Well, they, I, my youngest is 10. Okay. But yes, the older ones, we, they, not only do I have three sons in the house, but fortunately the house seems to be a magnet for a lot of teenage boys in the neighborhood. <laughs> so the good news is it's very clear who's the queen of the house. Okay. And that is me. <laughs> That's important to establish. <laughs> I like clarity. <laughs> Well, we're going to, uh, Lee and I are going to ask you a couple questions before we move into the, the main topic here. So it'll kind of be rapid fire. Lee, yes. I'll let you so, go next. Great. All right, Stacy. What is a book that every physician should read? You know, a favorite of mine is a book called Invisible Man, written by Ralph Ellison. The book itself, obviously, is the subject of debate and, and controversy, but it's a tremendous novel that highlights issues of race and identity. And what I love about the book is in a prologue to one of the editions, Mr. Ellison uh, compares the term invisible and unvisible. And that helped me really hone in on what fascinates me. Invisible is what we can't see because of the physical limitations of our eyes. You know, we use microscopes and MRIs to see the invisible. Unvisible is what we don't see because we choose not to. We don't see because of our biases. And I think my life as a physician scientist has really been intrigued with the invisible. So that's why I love that book. Um, Paul Farmer's Mountains Beyond Mountains is a favorite Martin Luther King's Letter from a Birmingham Jail. It's not a book, but it's an incredibly powerful read. Those are those are some of my recommendations. I I feel like the description of invisible that might that might be pertinent to the topic that we're going to be talking about today. Um, I was thinking the same thing. That's <laughs> uh, yeah, it's really perfect. Yeah, you know, he gave me the word. I I've been studying sexuality and caring for women with sexual concerns for many years, and it was maybe 5 or 6 years ago where I happened to pick up this edition of Invisible Man and and read the prologue, and I was so happy I finally had the word <laughs> to describe what intrigues me because of course, you know, female sexual function uh is hard to see with a microscope, <laughs> right? So, uh invisible is my word. I wanted to ask you, this is a, a question that we've been asking a lot on the show. You're, you, you have had a great career already. Uh, we would say you're successful. And what are some, where, can you give an example of a time where you, you failed at something or where you struggled and what you took away from that? You know, the life of an academic physician, especially those of us who do um, research or, you know, pursue NIH funding, is filled with failure and rejection. <laughs> so one has to be an optimist and, and, you know, perseverance is key. 
When I think about failure, I remember an early childhood event. I was learning to ride a horse. The horse I was on literally ran away, uh, eventually threw me, and I landed, thankfully, in a pile of manure. (laughs) And the riding instructor said to me, get up and get back on that horse, the same horse that just threw me, wearing manure, covered in manure. And I sort of looked at her, although she had a lot of credibility, she was a very experienced rider. And I looked at her like, you're crazy. But, you know, she seemed to know what she was talking about. And I did, I literally got back on the horse. And that was an incredible life lesson. I mean, we've all heard people say, if you fall off the horse, get back on, but it literally happened to me. And I will say that I am nothing if not perseverant. I, yeah, we, I, I love this question because the, the whole, we talked about the book Growth Mindset, and that was something that I, I, I wish I would have learned much earlier in life. I mean, I think I've done okay so far, but I, I just, I wonder how things would have been different if I had sort of developed this mindset of like things that are hard, things that you struggle through, you know, you are learning, you can, you can get through them. And, and I always had these like limitations to my thinking. So I, I think what your, your coach, your riding coach there was just like, didn't want you to, wanted you to recognize immediately that you just had to get right back on and try again. And so I I love that story. Yeah, you know, as an obstetrician, I can say, at least for me, that failure is a lot like labor. I mean, it can be incredibly painful in the moment, but it's also can be very productive. I think for me, for the most part, I have (laughs) thankfully forgotten many failures, because it would be hard to do it again. You know, it's hard to go to do labor again, if you really remember how painful it was the the last time. (laughs) That's a good point. I wonder if a key to success is a short memory, or you (laughs) kind of insulate yourself from those memories. (laughs) Yeah, the pain of it. I mean, it's very difficult. You spend hundreds of hours or years Mm -hmm. training to do something right, and and you receive rejection. Um, But there Fortunately, we can learn. Hopefully, we can learn from our mistakes and uh, and move forward. But I don't love failure. I and I'm hard pressed to find anyone who does. Um, Stacy, we just completed our first women in medicine episode with the Curbsiders, and we talked with Vinny Aurora about mentorship and sponsorship. So, I wanted to ask you, what's the best advice you've ever received that was relevant to being a woman in medicine? You know. I'm not sure it was the best advice, but I did. And, you know, unfortunately, again, as an obstetrician, I did have someone telling me that there was no good time to have a baby. Uh, Mm -hmm. I guess um, the value in that advice was, you know, if there's no good time, then do it when when it's right for you. Do it when Mm -hmm. you need to. Um, I think the best advice I received overall, not necessarily specific to being a woman, is, and you probably have all heard this, perfect is the enemy of good. And what I value in that advice, which I learned in my surgical training, is, you know, perfection is about me. It's about the doctor. It's about my ego. It's about how other people see me. Whereas good is about, you know, what we do for others, in my view. In surgery, you know, a person could be perfectly hemostatic and also dead. <laughs> that would be, a, you know, a surgical translation of that idea. But it, that's really stuck with me. And I, I, it's a mantra I keep in my head. Perfect is the enemy of good. 
I think we need to move on to the main topic. Uh, Leah, I wanted, I know you had a pick of the week that you wanted to share quickly before we do that, since it's related to what we're talking about today. Yes. Um, so last night, uh, to prepare for this episode, I was looking at Dr. Lindau's website, woman, womanlab.org, and I watched her Spotlight Health um, Aspen Ideas Festival video about the bulbo cavernosis. It's five minutes, kind of a quick TED-style talk about a muscle that um, even those of us in medical training know very little about. So I really recommend everybody go take a look, uh, especially as a follow-up to this episode. I am okay. I'm looking. I'm looking at our our script here, and the uh, I just I finally get the name that Nora Nora named. Yeah, Nora named our patient uh, Barbara Cavernosis, and I was like Google searching. I'm like, it's in the brain. How is that related to the cavernous sinus? I was like, what the heck are we talking about here? So now it's all making sense to me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Nora. Leah, did you want to read the case? Sure. All right. So Ms. Barbara Cavernosa, she's 58. She has diabetes and hypertension, and she comes into your primary care clinic because of fatigue. She sits down in the exam room with you and begins to tell you that she's really stressed about work and her recent divorce, and her sleep is really suffering. And then she tells you that she has a new male partner for the last six months, but things are not going well. She hadn't been sexually active for at least six years since just before menopause. She theoretically wants to be intimate with her new partner, but doesn't feel desire or arousal, and she's not able to have orgasms like she could with her ex-husband like 10-ish years ago. She wants to know if this is normal now at 58, and if this is how sex will be from now on. So first of all, Stacey, we'd like to ask you a little bit about definitions. When we talk about female sexual dysfunction, what are we really talking about? So... You know, of course, the DSM-5 uh, defines, has very specific criteria for defining female sexual dysfunctions. And the main categories for uh, dysfunction are female sexual interest and arousal disorder. So that's all one disorder. They used to be two separate ones. Female orgasm disorders and geni- genital pelvic pain and penetration disorders. And then there are some others The DSM uses very specific criteria with respect to the duration of the problem, whether it's primary or secondary, et cetera. In gynecologic practice or even in primary care practice, the the DSM criteria are, they're important and helpful for understanding the various categories of problems, but we're really not beholden to those criteria. I tend to uh, think about problems, female sexual function problems. I don't have to label somebody as having a dysfunction in order to understand their problem and help alleviate the problem. Uh, And so uh, that's sort of how I would think about it. But arousal difficulties, orgasm difficulties, and pain are three big categories, and they oftentimes come together. Back to our patient's question, She's, she's wondering, is this just a part of her normal aging? And the answer is no, it it is not a normal part of aging to have an abrupt change in sexual function. Uh, In fact, from our own research uh, and published in the New England Journal of Medicine 2007, we did a national population-based study of sexuality and aging. And we find that in women, 
the prevalence of most sexual function problems is pretty similar across age groups. We were looking at a probability sample of the U.S. population ages 57 uh, to 84. While there is a decent prevalence of sexual function problems, the, the prevalence is pretty stable across age groups. For men, of course, erectile dysfunction does increase with age, and so we could potentially call that a normal problem that occurs with aging. Um, it seems to me she has some other health issues that might be impeding her sexual function. I, that's what I was going to ask about. What should we be focusing on our history and review of systems? And um, when we're talking to her about menopause, um, how does that kind of affect your history and review of systems as well? So first of all, you know, one of the challenges I think for primary care physicians in taking care of sexual function problems is just the simple fact of time. A seven minute visit is not sufficient to address this person's concerns. Mm -hmm. She's there, you know, presumably she's, she has diabetes and hypertension. We first need to make sure that those health conditions are well managed. She has sleep issues, which is, uh, these are a very common underappreciated cause of uh, sexual dysfunction in men and women. And we need to address that. And so first, for starters, what we want to do is acknowledge, thank you for sharing this concern with me. It's Mm -hmm. a legitimate health problem. um, A lot of people experience difficulties with sexual function. It's, It's not your destiny because of your age, and we can address it. But would you be open to coming back and having an appointment where we just focus on that issue? And I would recommend scheduling, if possible, at least a 30-minute visit where you can take an appropriate, you know, biopsychosocial history, because that's really what's needed to hone in on a treatment. So that's my first bit of advice. Don't try to tackle this in, in a seven-minute visit. What, what is the etiology or pathophysiology of a lot of these complaints? Is it, is it, I imagine it's complex, but can you can you go into that a little bit? How you think about it, uh, f- a, a, so that we as internists might be able to fix some of at least the kind of medical comorbidities. Yeah. So in this patient's case, you know, I I use the bio George Engel's ni- 1977 biopsychosocial model as a guide in terms of thinking about history taking. I think it's really simple if we think about it that way. What are the health, what are the physical health conditions this person is is dealing with and how well are they managed? So we have diabetes, we have hypertension, we have sleep. Um, What are the psychological, emotional, mood, mental health issues? So we have stress, we have divorce. um, And what are the social and relationship dynamics? And so we have, you know, new partner, things not going well. Let me just focus on the on the partner front for a moment. It's very important to remember that most sex occurs between two people. And if we only focus on the woman, we may miss the fact that the real problem with her sexual function is her partner is not having a quality erection, or he has premature ejaculation, or they have poor communication. So she's not getting the arousal or foreplay that she needs to meet her needs. So biopsychosocial, and let's remember to ask about the age, the health conditions of the partner as well. And that's how I would approach things in this case. I wonder, I have a lot of patients who present with their partner in the room. Um, I wonder, do you seek the history from both of them if they're there? Would you ask the partner to leave the room while you discuss this issue with your patient? How do you navigate that? 
you know, in, in healthcare, it's I even in my sexual function clinic, I would say it's probably 10 to 20% of the time that a person presents with a family member. In the context of cancer care, it's very common that people show up with, a, you know, maybe even a whole group of family members. I think it's, you know, my point of view is that we should be receptive to having family members present. But as a gynecologist, my patient, you know, I have one patient, and it's the woman you know, who's come for my medical care. Family physician might be in a little bit of a different situation. Mm. Across the board, though, I think it's very good practice, and this is, this is my opinion, that uh, to say to a woman, your partner is welcome. I'm going to be asking you very specific questions about your uh, sexual activities and your function. And I request, as a matter of routine, to have a few minutes alone, just the two of us. And I say that up front because what you don't want to happen is you start to get worried that maybe, for example, there's abuse or mm-hmm. worried that there's something they don't want to say. And then you ask the partner to leave. It, it, it just it needs to be as a matter of routine. And I think whether the issue is sexual dysfunction or the issue is diabetes or cancer, it is important for the doctor to always have a few minutes alone with the patient. Now, if you have a patient with dementia, it might be a different story. Um, but that that is, I think, a very important part of my practice. I don't typically take a history from the partner. If the patient wants to ask the partner, you know, how's your erection? Or mm-hmm. I, I let the patient manage that. But I really direct my history taking to the patient herself. Could you go through some of the specific questions that you would ask when you do have that that woman in the exam room alone, what what are what are you asking? So that our audience knows it'd just be helpful to hear how you frame the questions. Sure. If the if the patient is comfortable with having her partner present, uh, I and you know, I, I really go through the detailed sexual history for the most part with the partner there, including, you know, what's the how's her partner's health? Is he taking medications? You know, it, in the case of a female partner, is she herself having any sexual function uh, difficulties? Questions about abuse, I ask one-on-one. It is, I think, not wise, and there's evidence to support this, to ask questions about physical, emotional, sexual abuse um, in the presence of others. And most women won't disclose it anyhow, and raising those questions with an abusive partner in the room could actually trigger abuse after the visit. So how do I ask about abuse? You know, I routinely ask and I tell my patients this, here are some questions I routinely ask everybody. And these are questions about exercise, you know, how often do you exercise, about diet and body weight? Have you been able to manage your weight? Do you feel like you're at a healthy weight for you? How do you feel about your body? Um, And do you have any history of trauma or abuse? And I specifically say physical, um, emotional, sexual uh, abuse. Those are the questions I ask specifically. And, you know, I also ask patients, do you have any history of abuse where you weren't the victim directly, but where you were a witness to abuse? Because that witnessing abuse can be, you know, as traumatic as as being the person abused directly. What about the specific questions to their sexual history? Yeah. What would would those be? So, um, I typically start with, when's the last time you had sex? It's just an easy anchor. And interestingly, what I've discovered over the years in my practice is that when a patient is getting ready, finally gets up the courage to come see the doctor with a sexual function problem, they'll oftentimes have like diagnostic sex. (laughs) 
So they might not have had sex for two years, but they had sex last week because they want to have fresh in their mind the words to describe what's going on. Diagnostic sex. Wow, very scientific. It, it you know, I, I, nobody's written about this to my knowledge. Um, and if I, you know, I went through all the charts, I, I could, I could go beyond anecdote here. Uh, people say, you know, I, I had sex really so I could explain to you what's going on. So I asked, what was that? Who initiated? What was it like? What did you feel? If people say they had pain, where was the pain? Is it around the opening to the vagina? Is the pain deep inside? That there, that's an important distinction diagnostically. As a side note, deep dyspareunia or deep painful intercourse is ought to be uh, regarded with concern. A woman who has not had painful intercourse and all of a sudden has new onset deep dyspareunia warrants uh, thorough gynecologic evaluation and maybe even an ultrasound. Most of women, when they present with painful sex, are having pain around the opening to the vagina, the introitus, uh, and that the, the path for evaluating that is different. And then I ask, like, who initiated? Why did you, you know, so my patient might say, well, I initiated, even though she's told me her libido was low. So I'll say, well, why did you initiate? And she might say, well, I was trying to have sex so I could tell you about it. Or she'll say... I know sex is important to my partner. I know it's important for our relationship. I, you know, Ms. Barbara Cavernosis theoretically wanted to be intimate. That's the way it was described. I would say a slightly different word. My patients say, in my mind, I know it's good to be sexually active with my partner. I just don't feel any physical motivation. So they have this cognitive drive, but not a physiological drive. Um, and so I, I explore that, you know, some patients say I'm numb down there. I don't feel anything at all. It's pretty rare that people have lost all genital sensation, even say after a hysterectomy, that's not a usual outcome. And, and really what I'm learning is they're not getting aroused. So they don't have the sensation they're used to having it. Um, so those are some of the questions I ask about masturbation. And you just got to, just like riding a horse, <laughs> you just got to be <laughs> practice. <laughs> you got to practice saying the word. And for the most part, because my patients are coming to me as an expert and, you know, for sexual function help, they're not shocked by this question. Most people do masturbate. And, um, and for those who don't, I ask, why don't you, you know, were you taught that you shouldn't? Does it just not appeal to you? Those are the, those are the routine kinds of questions I ask. Stacy, you mentioned that deep dyspareunia is a red flag for you. What is it a red flag for you about? You know, deep dyspareunia, meaning pain deep in the vagina, is ought to, you know, add to our differential. Is there an organic problem? You know, is there a new fi- is there a fibroid on the uterus or some other uterine? Um, growth or change? Is there a nexal mass like an ovarian or fallopian tube problem? You know, is there, is there a bowel issue? You know, when we're look when we're seeing women in their 50s, 60s, 70s present with um, painful intercourse, we have to be careful not just to 
presume that it's low estrogen mm-hmm. and uh, and not look further. And in, it, it, deep dyspareunia is the minority of cases of dyspareunia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just warrants a higher level of, of concern, in my view. It, it's not uncommon in my practice that when a woman comes in with a new onset deep dyspareunia that I find a new uh, uh, pelvic mass now, most of the time, a pelvic mass is benign, but the older a woman is, the, the more likely it's it's something more concerning that needs attention. Kind of in the same line of seeing older patients, I definitely see patients in the geriatric clinic on many medications, really burdened by polypharmacy. I think we all do. I was wondering if there's any particular medications that could cause or contribute to sexual dysfunction that we should focus on. You know, one of the things I love about geriatrics. And I have a dual appointment in in geriatrics, although I'm not uh, specifically subspecialty trained, but I love the emphasis on function, on optimizing function, and on minimizing uh, dependence on pharmaceuticals. As people get older, we should... Actually, most of my patients would appreciate that approach, even in their 20s. -hmm. Now, with with female sexual function, um, there are a wide variety of medications that have been implicated. Let me just talk about some common ones. Systemic antihistamines. So I have, uh, you know, patients who have vaginal dryness for other reasons, but on top of that, they're taking a systemic antihistamine every day. Oh, that's good to know. I, and that's one of the medications I hate. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if it dries out the nose and the eyes, it's going to dry out the vagina too. So could we, mm-hmm. you know, could we switch to a more local uh, treatment to see if that will alleviate some of the dryness problem? Um you know, antidepressants, especially SSRIs, have been implicated in decreased libido and uh and then sort of the downstream effects of decreased libido. And untreated depression is also not good for libido. So we, we sort of, we can battle female sexual function and depression. You know, we, we oftentimes have those two conditions in tension. And I, I do work with my patients and their psychiatrists uh, to try to optimize um, their medical management of depression or see if they can be managed without medication. Um, but low libido is a common problem there. Um, of course, anti-hormonal therapy. So uh, 75% of the patients I care for have a cancer diagnosis and a large proportion of those have breast cancer, uh, especially the aromatase inhibitor therapies, which are, um, inhibiting estrogen synthesis can cause, uh, an ex- you know, in some women, and I only see a portion of women on aromatase inhibitors, I see the ones who are having sexual dysfunction. But uh, in some women, an aromatase inhibitor can really cause an, ex- uh, an extreme form of atrophy in the vulva and vagina. And uh, so, you know, acknowledging that a woman is taking that medication, recognizing she's taking it for a very important reason, and helping her understand that the the vaginal dryness and painful intercourse is not in her head. It's actually in her vulva and her vagina. You know, that's therapeutic in itself. So many women think the problem is just in their head because they've been told that or nobody's mentioned these side effects. So they assume it's just them. Um, So those are some common ones. I wanted to make sure that we got a little bit into what you look for um, at lab-wise with these patients when they're coming to you, if anything. Um, I, I've had, I can tell you, usually it's in relation to fatigue. I'll have people come in the office 
I want you to check my hormone levels. I think that's why I'm fatigued. And uh, I think fatigue yeah. is a comparable topic to what we're talking about, where it's like biopsychosocial um, in nature as well. And it's very, it can very, be very challenging to treat. So can you talk about what you do lab-wise? Yeah. In my practice, the patients who are coming to see me, either they have cancer and they, or they've been recently treated for cancer and their medical management is largely done by the, the oncology team, um, or they're seeing a general gynecologist. So I have a hyper-specialized practice. And that's an important caveat because uh, in primary care, I may do more than I do. It is extremely rare that I order hormonal tests. Um, there's just not good evidence that a certain, you know, that there's a number in terms of an estradiol level or testosterone level that uh, reliably correlates to a woman's sexual function concerns. And so it's just exceedingly rare that I'm ordering those tests. And by the way, before I start ordering estradiol tests, especially in a woman on an aromatase inhibitor, I need to be in good communication with her oncologist because those numbers can have implications or raise worries, uh, you know, in the oncology realm. So um, some women, you know, come with thyroid dysfunction. And if their thyroid does not appear to be, you know, if their thyroid hormones don't appear to be well controlled, I'll work with their primary care doctor, their endocrinologist to make sure that's the case. Certainly thyroid dysfunction can affect, uh, cause fatigue and affect sexual function. Um, I would say I'm, you know, I'm more apt to, to obtain STD testing or HIV testing. There are many women who come to see me have never had an HIV test. And, uh, you know, the only woman in my career I've diagnosed with HIV was a 58-year-old woman with a partner who every who she knew had HIV, but nobody had ever offered her a test. Oh my gosh. But wow. for the most part, te- you know, for, there are sexual function clinics across the country and around the world that will order large batteries of hormonal and other tests to assess a person, a woman with sexual dysfunction in my practice and in the best available evidence, I, I just really think we're, we uh, largely don't need to do that. Is there a way, do you have trouble convincing patients of that? Not in, not in my practice. And I think, um, and again, my, my response might be different than somebody who's caring for women with sexual function problems in a primary care setting. My patients have been evaluated to the hilt typically before they come to see me. And, you know, I share with my patients my philosophy and my, my general philosophy is we need to identify, you know, what's working and how do we leverage those assets to help restore your function, help you get you back to where you want to be. Let's look at what's happening with your partner and his or her health and function and optimize there. If we need tests or if we need drugs, we'll use those. But let's see if we can uh, get you back to where you want to be without those interventions. And um, there may be people who choose not to come back to see me once I share my approach. Uh, That's very possible. Um, But most of my patients would prefer not to have more blood drawn and not to take more medicines if they don't have to. Stacey, I'd love to get into treatment a little bit um, and include maybe a discussion of when to refer. I think, as you mentioned, those of us in more urban centers are really lucky to have places we can refer. Um, but so, but for us here, um, kind of what things can we start in the office, in the primary care office, and maybe for those of us who don't have um, locations where we can refer, what are some kind of things that we can do? I know there's this is such a wide variety of um 
problems and disorders kind of under this umbrella as well. But any general principles? Absolutely. Let's focus on vaginal dryness because it's such a common, highly prevalent problem uh, for women. And let's let's think about Barbara, who is postmenopausal. I do think it's important in primary in primary care if we're treating women for sexual dysfunction, we have to look down there. We can't presumptively treat. And uh, so it is important that uh, the physician feel comfortable to take a look at the vulva, which is the outer anatomy, and to take a look inside the vagina, which is going to require a speculum exam, uh, and ideally to perform an internal or a pelvic exam. What are we looking for? Well, we shouldn't presumptively treat with estrogen. We should know that that atrophy is the problem. We're looking for skin irritation and um, and dermatologic conditions that might actually be a reversible cause of of um, painful intercourse. And then obviously those need to be treated for what they are. It can be you know if I'm a primary care physician working in a rural community and I and I don't know. Uh, or don't feel comfortable doing the gynecologic evaluation, I need to find somebody who is. I just, I just can't endorse the idea of treating women with sexual dysfunction without looking down there. Mm-hmm. And I've seen a lot of those women and they've, you know, I've seen women, for example, stem cell transplant uh, patients who had graft versus host disease of the vulva, and they'd been suffering with it for years, they knew they had graft versus host disease, but nobody looked down there. And in a few days with a corticosteroid, their problem is resolved, but they suffered for years mm-hmm. and they don't feel comfortable asking and, and the doctors caring for them didn't feel comfortable looking. So that's one issue Yeah, we've got. And I think physicians, primary care physicians practicing in rural communities uh, do have to um, have the training and, and frequently do perform gynecologic care. Uh, so, you know, in terms of vaginal dryness, we don't always need to use estrogen. Estrogen is a very effective treatment for dryness. It's FDA approved for treatment of um, dyspareunia in the setting of, of vulvovaginal atrophy. And there are a whole variety of estrogen formulations. Um, but eliminating irritants, women should not be washing with soaps in the, in the vulva or vagina. There is just no evidence to support that practice. So eliminating hyper hygiene practices and, and irritants is valuable. Um, and then there are non uh, pharmaceutical uh, strategies that can be helpful in alleviating um, uh, dryness with intercourse like a lubricant or uh you know, more on a regular basis, like a moisturizer. What is the role of referral to psychiatry, sex therapists, um, and those kind of referrals for to, to address the psychological aspect of sexual dysfunction? So it is the case that, um, as we as we talked about before, women uh, being treated for depression or women treated for severe mental illness are at higher risk of sexual dysfunction. Likewise, there is evidence to support the, the idea that women who have a history of sexual abuse are at higher risk for sexual dysfunction. And it's very important to understand that the majority of women who experience painful intercourse or decrease in libido have no history of abuse or mental illness. Okay, so uh, both of those things can be true. As physicians, we need to be careful not to suggest to a woman that the, that the presumptive etiology of her sexual dysfunction is something wrong with her head. 
Women repeatedly get this message that you're just too stressed out. You just need to try harder, have a glass of wine. (laughs) Um, And that's, you know, and in some cases, okay, maybe that maybe that's the solution. But the vast majority of the time, a woman, she's tried those things. Okay, (laughs) when she shows up and admits a sexual function problem to her doctor, she's tried the the general self care approaches and still things aren't improving. So um, I'm very careful and 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 take every opportunity to say to a woman, you know, you have a muscle spasm. The bubble cavern muscle, you know, bubble cavernosis muscle around the opening to your vagina is in a very spastic state. And that's causing you pain. This problem starts in your vagina, not in your head. It actually doesn't even start in your relationship, which which women also worry about. And um, I try to, as much as possible, explain to women how the physical findings might really explain the symptoms that they're having. Now, if you're having those problems and your relationship is suffering and you don't have anyone to talk to, can that make you feel anxious or stressed or even depressed? Sure. Um, and so there is a role, of course, to for evaluating for undiagnosed um, mood issues and getting those treated. And relationship uh, dynamics also oftentimes do come with sexual dysfunction. They might even be the cause of the sexual dysfunction and then help from somebody who's trained as a marital therapist, couples therapist, or sex therapist is ideal. Can we find those people in more remote or rural areas? Can be difficult. Um, So we just have to avoid the knee jerk. And I've had patients say, well, my doctor told me I must have been abused as a child. You know, and I've gone in search of a history of abuse in my family that you know, stressed everybody out. We have to be careful about that. Is there for for the bulba cavernosis issue? Is there is there like a pelvic PT or retraining uh, type therapy that that you recommend for patients? Absolutely. In an ideal set, in an ideal situation for caring for female sexual uh, function problems. We have a psychologist, uh, a sex therapist, it might, that might be the same person, couples therapist. Fortunately, at the University of Chicago, we have somebody uh, with that training. And we would have a uh, pelvic floor physical therapist. And the, uh, the APTA, the American Physical Therapy Association, has a women's health group. Uh, physical therapist can obtain specialized training in pelvic floor physical therapy. Now, there, uh, um, pelvic floor physical therapists might be adept uh, and capable at treating pelvic floor problems that cause urinary incontinence, but less experienced or perhaps just like doctors, less comfortable dealing with pelvic floor problems that cause dyspareunia um, or, or other sexual function problems. So ideally, we look for a pelvic physical therapist who's comfortable across that spectrum. High tone pelvic floor dysfunction, just like poor quality sleep, is another very common and underappreciated cause of sexual dysfunction in women, and even in men, by the way. What happens with high tone pelvic floor dysfunction is that muscle around the opening gets very tight. The um, the levator ani muscles, the hammock muscles of the pelvic floor, get very tight. So we have weakness in the pelvic floor because it's in a hot, in a tight state and that the tightness of the muscles makes blood flow to the clitoris and to the genitalia difficult. I think of the nerves essentially being strangulated or in a hypoxic uh, micro environment. A woman will present complaining of painful intercourse. 
the pathognomonic uh, complaint is it feels like my partner's hitting a wall. It feels like there's a ridge. It feels like I'm a virgin again. <laughs> These are the kinds of things people say. And uh, not only will she have difficulty with penetration, but in more advanced cases, she'll complain about difficulty getting aroused and decreased sensation. If we can correct the hypertonicity in the pelvic floor muscles and we can retrain the bulbal cavernosus muscles so it's not in a spastic state, we also improve blood flow and oxygenization to the, the more distal nerves. And pelvic floor physical therapy can be extremely helpful in alleviating, alleviating not only the vaginismus and pain problem, but also the arousal and orgasm problems. What is happening in pelvic floor PT? Is this mostly a biofeedback-oriented approach? Pelvic floor PT is does use biofeedback um, in some cases. It's really manual therapy. So a woman who goes for pelvic floor PT should expect on the first visit to have a more thorough evaluation of her musculoskeletal system and a history that will focus especially on injuries to the low back, the hips, the straddle injuries or coccyx bone, you know, tailbone injuries are common cofactors in pelvic floor dysfunction. And she should expect to have an internal uh, pelvic exam. Some women uh, can benefit from transvaginal pelvic floor massage or pelvic floor trigger point release. Some women are not able to have vaginal penetration and the pelvic floor physical therapist may use transanal approach. In men, the pelvic floor physical therapy is transanal. So, uh, Stacy, I wanted to ask, because I know that we just have a few minutes left, our, I know our audience, a lot of people are probably asking them about hormonal therapies, herbal therapies, this female Viagra drug that's out there. How do you counsel patients that are sort of asking about pharmacologic therapy, and how do you tailor their expectations? You know, there's no question that if there were a magic pill to solve, you know, low libido, there would be a market for that <laughs> for men and women. Uh, as you know, uh, phlebanserin was uh, received FDA approval a couple years ago, uh, and the idea was that this drug would uh, promote libido for premenopausal women uh, with this problem. The, this per- so some women do come in looking for phlebanserin. Uh, unfortunately, this option hasn't played out uh, the way we might have hoped. Uh, this is a medication that needs to be taken nightly. It has some uh, side effects that can be problematic. Uh, not only that, but the FDA has in place a risk evaluation mitigation strategy that requires training by the physician, training by the dispensing pharmacist, a, a special consent form for the patient. Uh, so there's this sort of circle of liability uh, that has to be managed around the prescription of this particular drug. Um, and to my knowledge, I haven't seen insurance covering uh, this treatment option. These are barriers to use. And, uh, you know, fr frankly, my patients say, I think I'd rather have a glass of wine. And by the way, alcohol <laughs> and phlebanserin don't go together. Right. I, I have counseled many women about phlebanserin as a treatment option, and I've not had one choose to pursue it. I am a fan of options. I do think the more 
uh, options we have to treat female sexual function problems that are safe and effective, the better. Right now, the, the, the best option I have from a pharmacologic perspective is estrogen. And uh, most of my patients are using estrogen in, the, in a local form. They're using it on the vulva and in the vagina. We're using a cream. We also can opt to use a tablet or a ring, but the cream has the flexibility of how much you use and also being able to use a little bit externally. Um, we're, we're pretty limited in terms of uh, effective and safe pharmacologic treatments for sexual dysfunction for women. What about herbal supplements as well? Is, are there any that you recommend people avoid just as a part of harm reduction? You know, we recently saw approval of a DHEA suppository also for vaginal dryness. I've not seen much um, opportunity to choose that over estrogen. I mean, they're just estrogen works and we have more data on it. So the one benefit of the DHEA is that it's a suppository. And I, I don't think we have a suppository form of estrogen here in the US. So that might be one reason to try it. Before DHEA was approved, I did have patients who were um, obtaining DHEA type supplements um, from, you know, nutritional supply sources. I had one patient present with pretty significant clitoromegaly, and in she had seen multiple physicians and taking a detailed history, I came to learn that she was using a, a supplement that had DHEA. I uh, don't see strong evidence for nutritional or herbal approaches to treating female sexual dysfunction, and we have to be careful about uh, side effects. Stacy, I wanted to ask you about screening. Um, anecdotally, I think in my clinic, more men bring up sexual problems, to me at least, than women. Uh, I wonder if some of that is, you know, medication related. Men are looking for are looking for a medication like sildenafil. Um, and um, typically women are not bringing up this issue to me. Do you recommend that primary care doctors screen for sexual dysfunction? And does anything like relationship status, menopause, things like that push you to ask versus perhaps not screen for those issues? First of all, what I know is that we can't profile people. You cannot judge a book by its cover, and the best available evidence uh, supports the idea we should assume people care about their sexual function. That should be our baseline assumption. Men and women agree in study after study that sexual function is an important part of health, that it is a topic they want to be able to discuss with a doctor, and they want the doctor to initiate the discussion. And we doctors have a ways to go. Uh, to routinely um, assess sexual function. Uh, and women are particularly disadvantaged. In every single study where we've looked at this question, doctors are less likely to raise the topic with women than with men. And it may very well be that we have effective uh, pharmaceuticals, we have a prescription we can write, a pill we can take, uh, that are, you know, more effective at this point in treating male sexual uh, dysfunction than for the most part for female sexual dysfunction. Should we screen? I think when we talk about screening, we uh, feel like it's going to be a 10-question questionnaire with scoring, and it feels overwhelming. Most of the time, we have some intake process we, where we go through a review of systems, or we have patients check off problems in a checklist. It's so simple to include worries or concerns about sexual function 
as one of those checklist items, put it in the genital urinary section. Um, I probably would put it there and not in the social history section and not in the mental health section. Uh, Give people an opportunity to indicate it themselves. And yes, in the course of a new intake with a new patient or on the annual exams, ask, do you have any worries or concerns about your sexual function? And I would ask that of everybody. We have done uh, more detailed research. There's a a paper led by uh, Catherine Flynn, uh, published in Journal of General Internal Medicine 2015, which is a single item screener for self-reporting sexual problems in U.S. adults. This was carefully done uh, work and is for the practitioner or physician who wants to use a more detailed checklist. I would recommend this one. The last question we have is, can you give our audience uh, a a couple favorite take-home points? Take-home points. Number one, let's not profile people. Let's assume everybody cares about their sexual function until proven otherwise. Number two, let's not give women the idea that if they're having a sexual function problem, it must be in their head. Uh, Number three, let's approach sexual function for women and men in a biopsychosocial manner. And let's remember that most sex happens with another person, so it's important to assess uh, whether the cause of the sexual function problem is intrinsic to the patient sitting in front of you or whether it might actually start with the partner, because obviously the the treatment is going to be different uh, if it's the patient versus a partner problem. Lastly, you know, we doctors bring our own experiences and our own biases and our own hangups even to the practice of medicine. I recognize that talking about sex is not comfortable for everybody. Uh, Practice is a good idea. Uh, Patients will follow your lead. If you can ask the questions in a direct, matter-of-fact manner, just like we do all the other intrusive (laughs) questions we ask patients, people will be honest. And if they're not having a problem, you will have given them the gift to know that if they develop a problem, you're the kind of doctor they can talk to about it. And, and that's what we want our patients to believe is that we care about them as a whole person, even on topics that might make us feel a little bit squeamish. Thank you so much, Stacy. I feel so, so motivated to talk to more of my patients about this topic and at least bring it up to them so that they know I'm there if, they, if issues ever do arise. That's great. I echo all that. I think that the, our audience will, will find this in, information just so useful. Well, I certainly hope so. And I'm so appreciative that you decided to cover this topic today. Yeah. Yeah, we'd like to, uh, I think we'll have to do a future show with you because there's, there's a lot more that we didn't get a chance to dig into today. So thanks, uh, thanks so much for your time. We'll let you go now. Uh, thank you. Is there time for one last plug? Sure. Oh, yes. I want to say that after you know 10 years of intense focus on this topic in my practice, I became frustrated uh, with the one patient at a time, one publication at a time approach. And we have received a generous grant for two years that uh, has allowed us to build a platform called Woman Lab, W-O-M-A-N-L-A-B.org. Uh, This is based uh, out of our work at the University of Chicago. And Woman Lab is a platform where we are sharing as quickly as possible everything we know about uh, women, sexuality, aging, sex and disease. And our intention is to reach women and everybody who loves and cares for women. So I hope that resource will be helpful to your listeners. 
Yeah, absolutely. And we'll we'll include that in our show notes. And uh, I can put a link to that in our mailing list as well. So get a lot of eyeballs on that. Thanks so much. You're welcome. All right. Thank you. Bye. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can get show notes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I didn't think you were going to go for it. You can, I you, went for it. You can get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. Please send us an email at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can also reach out on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at thecurbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I've been Dr. Leah Witt. And thank you to our wonderful producer and writer for this episode, Nora Toronto, and to our whole team of curbsiders who help us, especially on social media. We have Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. Thank you and good night. Good night.